The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. So there's a crisis brewing in the Middle East, and it involves a bitter fight between U.S. allies... No one's paying attention. And a hack kicked it all off. But before we get into all that, I want to tell you a little bit about our guest today. His name is Khaled Fatel. And Mr. Fatel has been involved in the global infrastructure or the Internet since the mid-1990s. He championed and was a major contributor to making it the multilingual Internet it is today. And he was instrumental in the inclusion of the clause multilingualism of the Internet in the United Nations World Summit on Information Security in 2003, which was signed by 172 nations. He was one of the few international experts invited by U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan in 2004 for the first U.N. consultations in New York on the Internet governance, which led to the creation of the U.N. Internet Governance Forum. He also worked with other regional and international forums, such as the ITU and ICANN and many others. He has served on ICANN's advisory committee to the President Board on Internationalized Domain Names since 2005, and he has worked with many local communities and governments all over the world in helping them improve local Internet access while keeping safety and security core to his mission. So Colette is the chairman of the MLI Group, and the MLI Group provides geopolitical and poli-cyber terrorism consultations. They also do a whole bunch of other stuff like incident response and cyber insurance audits, which I'm going to ask them about as well. And they do some penetration testing and some cyber training on all different kinds of levels. But he really specializes in the geopolitical and poli-cyber threat uh, intelligence space, and that's the main reason why I'm having him on the show today. So Khalid is very uh, well-versed on some of the geopolitical events that are occurring in the Middle East, and there's a lot to talk about. So it's very timely to have him on the show. So I also want to mention that MLI is creating a six-episode TV series about the global cyber threat landscape and how it affects ordinary people's lives. And they're going to be doing a TV documentary on the Qatar crisis, which we're going to be talking about a lot today. So stay tuned for more about that in the future. So to be a thorough cybersecurity professional, you can't always be geeking out on bits and bytes all the time. You've got to understand geopolitical issues and how they're critical to understanding the threats and risks to your organization. So geopolitical intelligence is an important piece of any intelligence-led cybersecurity organization. So the latest crisis in the Middle East involves U.S. allies, and Qatar is the country that is front and center of the conflict. According to WN.com and many other news agencies, the Qatar crisis flared up when the official Qatar news agency quoted Sheikh Tamim, the emir of Qatar, as saying that, quote, there is no wisdom in harboring hostility towards Iran. Well, talk about pissing people off. Those words not only effectively supported Iran, but criticized the U.S. and Saudi Arabia's policies towards it and were enough to send the Saudis off the deep end. So Qatari officials quickly announced that their news agency had been hacked, and the report was fake news. 
when it was too late, it seems, because tensions had reached a boiling point and there was enough for the Saudis to spring into action. They promptly corralled their allies in the Middle East, notably the UAE, Egypt, and Bahrain, to collectively cut off their relationships with Qatar and imposed a series of very serious economic sanctions. So you see, for Saudi Arabia, which views Iran as its main rival and is taking every opportunity to isolate it, these words were intolerable. Riyadh said the sanctions would be lifted if Qatar agreed to a list of 13 non-negotiable demands, including cutting diplomatic ties with Iran, shutting down Al Jazeera news networks, and ending interference in sovereign countries' internal affairs. So in drawing a line in the sand here, Saudi Arabia is taking a gamble. Qatar basically has two options. They can either accept Saudi Arabia as the big brother and comply with its, uh, comply with its dictates, or as it, like most Gulf states do, or they can continue with an ambitious and relatively independent foreign policy and further incur the Saudis' wrath. This all being reported in WN.com. So if, if Qatar chooses to comply with even some of, of Riyadh's demands, the gamble would have paid off. Because Saudi Arabia would, could finish the crisis confident that Qatar will fall into line against Iran, as most of the other region does. But if Qatar opts for defiance with, with Iranian support, the sanctions and restrictions the Saudis have imposed will look like one big miscalculation. And that's an understatement. An attempt to discipline a small neighbor that instead drove it into the waiting arms of their Iranian enemy. So not surprisingly, Iran moved quick to capitalize on the situation, and their immediate response to the Qatar crisis was very inconspicuous. Right, foreign ministers' spokesman called for the reconciliation between both sides and highlighted that in today's interconnected world, inefficient use of sanctions is condemned, rejected, and unacceptable, which seemed like a lot of lip service to me. That pretty much fell on deaf ears all the way around as Iran summarily dispatched five planes filled with food to Qatar as the sanctions began to kick in. So in addition, once you know, Saudi Arabia banned Qatari flights from its airspace, Tehran was quick to allow Qatari flights into their skies. A quick reversal of relations that on its face seemed to backfire against the Saudis pretty quickly. And remember, this all started with a hack, with a cyber attack. So it seems Iran is pretty happy with the sequences of events as Qatari officials' first response to Saudi Arabia's moves signaled that, at least for now, defiance is trumping compliance. However, if that changes, and they give in to pressure, the Saudis are applying. Iran could end up more isolated than ever in the region. And they're, so they're doing everything they can to make sure that Qatar feels loved. They're definitely throwing out the love. And they're supporting the country's independence in light of the big brother of the neighborhood, grabbing the big whipping stick and handing out some lashings to one of their younger siblings. So I'm, I'm sitting on a couch here last uh, a couple Sundays ago, I guess, two weeks ago, and I'm enjoying a day of football. And I switched over to CBS to catch 60 minutes before I watched the Sunday night game. And there it was. Cutter was one of the stories that 60 minutes was covering. And one, and one of the lead comments on it was that it was all started with a cyber attack. And they started out the show by highlighting the fact that the Qatar crisis is one that not a lot of people know about. And I'll go with that assumption, too. I assume most Americans at least don't know much about what's going on there, mainly because you really don't hear much about it. Um, there's been some reports in the news some, some places, but it's not, in, it's not making any headlines. And you sure as... You sure don't hear about how it's a cyber attack uh, that started the whole conflict. 
but we're going to be talking about it here on Task Force 7 Radio because that's what we do. This is really important. The hack of Cutter News Agency pretty much jump-started a bitter fight among American allies that has the potential to unravel the U.S.-led coalition that is battling ISIS and trying to contain Iran. I mean, Secretary of State Tillerson has so much said so in a plea for Saudis to ease the sanctions so that food and medicine can once again flow freely to Qatar. So another issue that adds a lot of complexity to this dispute is the fact that Qatar is the home to the busiest and most vital American military base in the entire region. Now, I've been to Qatar, so I know a little bit about what it's like to land on a military base in the middle of the desert over there. The geopolitical situation there is much more complicated than it seems. And although Qatar has more modern ideas in terms of allowing women to drive and hosting U.S. universities and promoting freedom of speech and so on, they are commonly accused of also financing Islamist groups in Syria and allowing the Taliban and Hamas to operate out of Doha and essentially just having bad manners and not being a trusted broker to their neighbors and friends who are also United States allies. So a little bit more about Qatar. Qatar's filthy rich, man. They're the richest country in the world per capita. But describing it as the richest country in the world is an understatement. You really got to be there to see it. It really doesn't give it justice. I mean, they are just filthy rich. It's a small country of about 3 million people. I think about 300,000 people live there. They're actually from Qatar. The rest are foreigners who go to the work because most Qataris don't work. Because they don't have to. For the Qatari population that lives there and that was born there, water, education, electricity, and guaranteed pensions are all free. They're pretty much rich beyond anything we, can, we know here in the United States. And believe me, that was an education for me being there. I mean, it was, it was definitely an education um, to see that kind of wealth firsthand. So on June 5th, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Bahrain launched a suffocating economic and political blockade against Qatar, accusing the country of funding terrorism and closing it up to Iran, as the hack indicated they did. Qatar has denied and denounced the charges, and it seems the target of nearly a five-month-old siege is Qatar's 37-year-old emir, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani, who is now facing the challenge of saving his country after being misrepresented by hackers who infiltrated one of his news agencies. So the Washington Post recently reported that U.S. intelligence officials learned soon after the attack from newly analyzed information that showed that top UAE government officials discussed planned attacks on May 23rd, the day before they actually occurred. The officials said it was unclear if the UAE hacked the websites or paid for them to be carried out, and the Post did not identify the intelligence officials it spoke to for the report. The Post reported that the UAE ambassador to the United States denied the report in a statement saying that it was clearly false. What is true is Qatar's behavior, funding, supporting, and enabling extremists from the Taliban to Hamas to Gaddafi, inciting violence, encouraging radicalization, radicalization, and undermining the stability of its neighbors, the statement said. So the U.S. Department, the U.S. State Department declined to comment in response to a Reuters inquiry, and the report further stated that the Federal Bureau of Investigation was previously known to be working with Qatar to probe the hacking. So the FBI is investigating the hack, which I thought was very interesting. That's not the end of the story. More recently, according to The Guardian, an investigation by the FBI has concluded that Russian hackers were responsible for sending out fake messages from the Qatari government that has sparked the Gulf's biggest diplomatic crisis in decades. 
The Guardian said that it is believed that the Russian government was not involved in the hacks, but instead freelance hackers were paid to undertake the work on behalf of some other state or individual. Some observers, the report said, I love that, observers. Who are the observers? I want to hang out with the observers. Have claimed privately that Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates may have commissioned the hackers. The diplomatic spats in the Middle East are hardly rare, but the conflict that started this summer between Qatar and some of the Arab neighbors may be unique because it's the first major geopolitical crisis to have been sparked by a computer hack. It was nearly the first quote-unquote fake news war to transform into a physical conflict. What's really interesting here is that the Gulf Times offered some detail on what exactly happened or allegedly happened with the hack, reporting that on April 19th, a hacker gained access to the poorly secured website of the state-run Qatar News Agency, otherwise known as the QNA. The intruder had a Russian IP address, which doesn't really mean anything other than the address that the infiltration was coming from or infiltration, the exfiltration was coming from was a Russian IP address. But about three days later, the hacker discovered a vulnerability in the code of the news agency's internal network and then entered it. And within a few more days, the infiltrator had control over the entire network and had begun to collect email addresses, passwords, and messages. Weeks later, at 11.45 p.m. on May 23rd, the hacker entered the news agency system and uploaded a new story filled with fabricated quotes attributed to the emir. The story cited Sheikh Tamim purportedly criticizing Trump and praising Iran, the U.S. main strategic rival in the region, as an Islamic power. It also quoted him speaking warmly of Hamas, which the U.S. has designated as a terrorist organization, and the Muslim Brotherhood as well. The fake story went live on the website at about 12.13 a.m. and had soon become the most popular story in the website's history. Early the next morning, Emirati and Saudi news sites were reporting the emir's purported comments loudly and wildly. Q&A staff, and they're in crisis mode, shut the website down to prevent any further political damage, and Qatari officials had directly contacted their regional counterparts, asking them to prevent the story from spreading. We're not talking about video games and hackathons here on Task Force 7. We're talking about real-life situations with real-life consequences. The cyber attack nearly sparking a multi-country military conflict among U.S. allies in the Middle East. No one's talking about it. Bad news for us and bad news for the world. We'll be right back with our special guest, Khalid Fatal, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. 
Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest straight from London, Khaled Patel, the chairman of the MLI Group. Welcome to the show, Khaled. Thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, George. It's my pleasure. So, Khaled, you know, I've, I've heard you speak often, and I, and I know that you've been quoted saying that cybersecurity is no longer the key word here, that survivability is. Are you, are you, are you being overdramatic, or is there validity to this? Can you please explain when you, when you talk about survivability? You know, that's a, that's a very, very good question. It's a good question to start with. Um, let me just put it in context. Um, a couple of years ago, actually more than three, four years ago, and when we were talking about survivability, many decision makers were telling us just scaremongering. I think now what's happening is they get it in less than five minutes. Um, and I can just put it in a very, very brief uh, 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 context uh, for your listeners. Um, we've all witnessed um, in recent years and also in the last few months major cyber breaches. So uh, we have, we've, seen, um, we've seen the Equifax, we've seen the, uh, the, um, uh, uh, the, the Yahoo. Um, um, what's very clear is that traditional cybersecurity strategies are failing on, base, on daily basis. You also have um, a, a new breed of destruction-motivated cyber terrorists like ISIS um, that are, are also on the rise. You have also the political hacking, uh, politically motivated hacking perpetrated by uh, rogue states, nation states, you name it. And their aim is to change the direction of the, um, uh, the, economical, the economic and political direction of nations. Um, Plus, you add on top of that that <clears throat> excuse me, you add on top of that the um, the advent and uh, and the speed at which technology is evolving at breakneck speed. Guess what? What you have is conclusive that um, cybersecurity is no longer the key word. Survivability is the next breach that can, that takes place on an organization may not necessarily be by somebody who's asking for a ransomware they may be somebody who has a destruction motivation to make a political statement or a, a government that is aiming to uh, underlie, undermine uh, other nations and other economies and, um, and uh, decision makers need to become aware of this. So yes, survivability is, is significantly validated nowadays. So, so a few years ago, back around 2013, you created a new term called Pali Cyber. And you yes. wanted to use that to identify a new type of cyber hacking. Can you explain what you mean by that and why it's critical in today's threat landscape? Yes. In, in fact, uh, when, when, you look at, when you look at the cybersecurity space, we've been using the term cybersecurity or information security for the last, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 years. And um, we both know, and your listeners do uh, recognize, that um, – that's not penetrating at the level of the boards, at the C-suite level, the German CEOs, because they still treat this as a, um, a, a technical thing, a, a cyber thing. So what we came to, what we observed back in 2012 when we were doing a major study of the Internet usability in emerging markets, we, we were the first to recognize and, uh, and see the early days of ISIS uh, through cyber, and that destruction motivation. 
as a result, we, we felt that it was necessary to change the conversation from being about cybersecurity and create a new label that distinct, distinguishes the, uh, the, the new cyber threats the uh, political, uh, 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 ideological, religious, and destruction motivation um, by these groups from the rest of the stuff. I'll give you a simple example. Um, we've all heard about the Stuxnet uh, uh, cyber attack. Yes, it was politically motivated, but the Stuxnet was, the objective was not to destroy the Iranian nuclear power plant. It was to disrupt it. Aramco, same thing. The, the infusion of political and destruction motivation plus the ideological uh, uh, change to the, um, uh, uh, to the threat landscape meant that you have to create something that uh, 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 makes decision makers recognize that this is different. Polycyber is that. By definition, polycyber is... Uh, we define polycyber as uh, cyber attacks perpetrated or inspired by extremist groups like ISIS, by uh, 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 rogue or nation states, or by their proxies. And if you look at the uh, the, the seismic change we've observed, we've seen on the on the global threat landscape, not just cyber, cyber and non-cyber, um, everything has changed. This is what we call today the era of the unprecedented. And when you factor that in, you really need to create uh, uh, um, uh, awareness at the level of the board and the C-suite that they can relate to that is non-technical, and polycyber is what we use to define the new threats that are, are a threat to survivability. Yes. So is, is the goal of the term really to stress the motivation of the adversary so the C-suite actually starts to comprehend, you know, who their adversary is and, and what their motivations are just by the, the, the name itself, the term that you're using? You know, this is, this is critical. Um, uh, when you talk, when you deal, when you deal with the, um, uh, the cyber, cybersecurity threats, um, it's always been from a defensive point of view and from a technological implementation point of view of how you mitigate these threats. Well, with the birth of the destruction motivation and the cyber terrorist and the ISIS and their ability to inspire others, there are some fundamental, um, uh, 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 fundamental uh, 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 thought processes and approaches in cybersecurity that have been totally debunked. I'll give you an example, and I'll keep this very, very brief. Um, the may, the, the, a, 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 a specific ethos in the way we mitigate threats is to make our defenses better than, uh, and, and not cost effective for a hacker to keep on uh, uh, trying to, um, to, um, to breach us so they go somewhere else. That is based on the, uh, the cost uh, assumed by a perpetrator to try to hack you. So if you make it cost uh, inefficient, inefficient for them, they go somewhere else. And that's because traditionally the cyber attacks came from cyber criminals. So if they can get to you in 20 minutes, guess what? You're a, you're a great bargain. Um, so you make it difficult for them. With the advent of technology and with the advent of uh, the prospect of insp inspiring followers of ISIS to actually implement cyber attacks, um, that, 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 uh, that fundamental uh, ethos has totally, totally been debunked. The cost of these people is virtually nothing. 
And not on, on top of that, their motivation is not financial. These people aren't coming to steal data. They're not coming to steal credit card details. They're coming to actually deliver a political uh, agenda, which is a destruction motivation, to recruit more people, to deliver, uh, to, to actually force their, uh, their, uh, their image. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the things that uh, we warned about back in uh, 2014 and 2015, that the, uh, we will see an increase in the uh, terrorist activities of ISIS and the cyber activity of ISIS around the period when their caliphate in, in Syria and Iraq uh, uh, starts getting defeated. Well, as we both know, that caliphate is now almost but defeated, and we'll touch on that a bit later on. Um, and we're already starting to see that rise in traditional uh, uh, terrorist attacks and cyber attacks. But we, we are also warning that there will, there will be an exponential increase in cyber attacks once their, what I call their, their cyber caliph, their, their uh, caliphate, which is like if you treat it as a, a, a family that has a child that's suffering from a major illness, uh, they'll keep on fighting to keep that baby alive. But once the baby is dead and it's buried, guess what? They're going to focus on their, their uh, uh, moving forward. And this is what these destruction-motivated uh, terrorists will do. And cyber is a very easy tool. And there are so many organizations and stakeholders around the world today that are prepared and they are easy targets. When you say they and you say terrorist organizations, what, what organizations are you talking about? Well, for example, when you talk about today, the, the, the theme of, um, uh, we're talking about ISIS. We're talking about uh, their ability to inspire, okay? That inspiration is not only in doing the, uh, the traditional terrorist activities. Their inspiration is for people to do a lot more through the Internet. And the ability, so I won't name more names, but the truth of the matter here is um, while their sophistication is increasing, and they are well-funded, by the way, despite the, the severe setbacks they are facing in, uh, in their fight uh, uh, in Syria and Iraq. Um, uh, that ethos is, is uh, uh, alive and kicking, and it's getting worse, and worse, worse by the day. So um, it shouldn't be ignored. That's really the, the basic message. And by the way, one last point. Uh, this is not a pep talk. This is not to try and scaremonger people. It, it's, it's actually trying to make them aware that you can no longer just focus on the, the things you know how to do because there are missing ingredients in what you need to look at to make sure that you are either comprehensively or holistically secure. And just focusing on cybersecurity itself is not enough. So I want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the Middle East because I think you'll have some very interesting things to say uh, about the, the recent events. And in the first segment, uh, you heard me talking about the Qatar crisis and sort of the unprecedented political tsunami that's going on in Saudi Arabia over the last week or so. I'd like to hear your views about these uh, events and, and how they impact businesses here in the United States and in, 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 and in the West in general. And what should top decision makers be concerned about, if, if anything? Joe, you know, these are uh, some of what the uh, missing ingredients um, uh, that uh, businesses don't, don't uh, really pay attention to and the way they impact them, uh, not just indirectly, but directly, and, uh, and virtually overnight. I'll give you an example. Uh, many people in the U.S. or in the West have heard of the Qatar crisis, where you've got um, uh, four uh, Gulf state nations have actually been uh, into a major situation, bickering with each other, uh, 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 accusing Qatar of uh, uh, um, of uh, fun 
funding or supporting terrorists, etc. But the interesting part in the Qatar crisis is it's the domino effect started with a cyber hack. Most people don't know that. Um, uh, the New York Times, uh, excuse me, the Washington Post reported a couple of months ago, um, according to NSA right. sources, that the cyber attack was perpetrated by Qatar's neighbor, the UAE. Well, the UAE claims that they have nothing to do with it. Regardless of whether it was the UAE or somebody else, what's critical here is that, that cyber attack, which um, uh, uh, altered words of the Emir of Qatar, allegedly, um, uh, supporting some groups, etc., etc., which he said he never said that, that actually was premeditated by someone, and literally within hours of it being discovered or these words being posted, the domino effect has kicked, uh, kicked off, and now it's now literally five months later, and it's, it, it's unfolding, and it has had repercussions on a global level. So decision-makers who think this is not affecting them, they really need to wake up and, you know, get their hand out of the sand. Said something else. In the last couple of days, we've seen the, uh, um, a, a tsunami, a political tsunami in Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is also unprecedented. Um, the crown prince, under the banner of uh, fighting corruption, um, uh, uh, ordered the arrest of uh, four members, uh, four ministers, Many, I mean, we're talking about the top grade uh, 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 princes. Uh, one of them was the former crown prince. And many uh, uh, business uh, leaders, Saudi business leaders who are of global stature. Now, yes, the banner is the anti-corruption. And we all know in the Middle East, uh, there's a lot of corruption. But try to, you know, I won't go into detail about uh, sources we have, but Look at what happened with Qatar, which was started with a, a, uh, a cyber attack that got the domino effect uh, going. And the stories and some of the rumors, which some of it has, is, is yet to be confirmed, maybe we can wait until uh, WikiLeaks uh, <laughs> discloses this, is that there may have been a, uh, a, an attempt by some senior uh, members of the uh, Saudi family to create a coup against the crown prince and change the rule in, in Saudi Arabia. Now, these things don't happen in a vacuum. Whether the attempted coup is real or fake, it may have been the reason as to why the crown prince actually instigated this action. And now we both know how things can be started, but nobody knows how they can actually um, uh, unfold and where this will end. The truth of the matter here is these are events that have direct and indirect uh, uh, impact on businesses in the U.S. economically and politically, and um, and it's not just the simple stuff of oil. And uh, organizations and top decision makers need to say, well, how does this impact impact us? Does each organization can be impacted differently? And this is where they need to seek help on this. So, you know, I I've heard you say, you know, I know the UAE was mentioned in the article as possibly being the perpetrators of the hack and. Yeah, you know, I've gone over in the first part of the show that there's Russian IP addresses associated with it. I know the FBI is involved in investigating the hack. I mean, do you have an opinion on who hacked the Qatar News Agency? Do you personally have an opinion on that? Or you know what? Is there any information that you um, can share with us about that? It's not, it's not a, yeah, it's not a wise thing to give um, unqualified opinion. However, it's, it's relevant for people to ask themselves who stands to benefit from this. 
Um, the forensics of cyber breaches, as, as you know very well, and many of your uh, uh, listeners would, would know as well, is that if you really, really want to hide who you are, you can. And it's quite, it's quite relevant as well, is that if somebody leaves traces, that it could be left either because somebody is being stupid or because somebody left those traces for a Columbo to discover this. So the fact of the matter here is, without knowing who to attribute the cyber attack is, uh, uh, to, to, who, to attribute who, the, who perpetrated the attack, what is clear here is what the attack's motivation delivered. And that is to literally get brothers who have been brothers for generations, and this is the, the leaders of these different nations, to become all of the overnight enemies. And we're talking about sworn enemies. And this has cost not only the region, but the world, we're talking about uh, hundreds of billions of dollars. So this is, this is also unprecedented. So um, attribution is, is nice to have, but I think the, uh, the question mark here is, do, uh, do stakeholders uh, recognize that they could become part of that domino effect and that could impact their business? This is really critical. So in the threat actor taxonomy that I've talked about on previous episodes, when we talk about hacktivists, we're talking about people, you know, described as being politically motivated. And so it's when I think when I hear poly cyber, I think of, you know, hacktivists and, and that type of activity. But when we talk about terrorists and, and the threat actor taxonomy that I'm accustomed to and I, and I speak about, yep. these people are most often described as people being driven by religious or ideological beliefs. With, and so both have different motivations and TTPs, goals and objectives of a cyber attack. How does, in your mind, politically motivated hacking fit into all of this that we're talking about right now in the Middle East? And can you give our listeners some examples of, of what you're thinking? Well, look, uh, as, we as we described earlier on the definition of polycyber, which is political, ideological, so-called religious, and, and destruction motivation, um, when these attacks take place, I'll give you an example. Um, um, the TV5 Le Monde French new, um, uh, television uh, station, which has like 11 channels, was breached in 2015 by ISIS. And less than two weeks before, they had done a comprehensive uh, cybersecurity audit. So this was very, very sophisticated. They shut them down. Their websites were down. Their television stations were down. The NHS... Um, um, two months before WannaCry hit the world and debilitated the, debilitated the, the, uh, the NHS, the NHS two months before was, was breached by ISIS and had many um, uh, uh, NHS trust servers and websites destroyed and some of them got defaced and they posted some um, you know, images of uh, children uh, and you know, ugly images of, of, uh, of the war in Syria. Now, what you're describing, the, the, uh, uh, the political motivation, these motivations are important to become aware of because while they may not be happening at the same frequency as criminal cyber attacks, if, when they do happen, they can have devastating or potentially uh, uh, de uh, 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 destruction uh, uh, implications on the organization, and the 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 the, the, um, um, the implication isn't necessarily just the stakeholder or the company is going to disappear into smithereens and uh, like uh, you know into into space. Um, the market will do the rest. 
So I'll give you a simple example. One of the case studies, well, for example, you, you know about with Equifax, in the first week of, of the breach, uh, Equifax lost more than $4 billion um, uh, dollars from its share value. Um, uh, uh, the damage to trust, who knows whether this is recoverable by Equifax. Uh, one of the case studies we, uh, we, we look into um, and we share with the stakeholders is the, um, the breach on TalkTalk, uh, the UK telecom, which happened in 2015. Um, that we put a conservative estimate of the hard cost in excess of 250 million UK pounds. And um, that breach did not take place by either cyber criminals or even cyber terrorists. It was three kids who came into play. They didn't even steal data. The damage to reputation was insurmountable. And um, this is the repercussion of where we are in this, in this new day and age, in this new era. So, Khalid, we got to pause right there. We're coming up against the commercial break. We'll be right back with more from Khaled Fatal after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Khalid Patel, the chairman of the MLI Group. So let's pick up where we left off before the break. I think, you know, a little less over a week ago, we were talking about the, the Lebanese premier announces resignation from Saudi Arabia. And then five days after that, the, the Saudi Arabia advised all of its citizens to leave Lebanon immediately as well as provide warnings for its citizens not to travel to Lebanon. So Saudi allies, Kuwait and Bahrain, Bahrain, have both issued similar travel warnings to their their people and their population. So it appears that tensions are rising quickly between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So what, what, what should stop, you know, what should people start thinking about in terms of, you know, the cybersecurity experts and the decision makers and how should they anticipate you know, if there is a possibility, a hard possibility of a kinetic conflict in the region, what do we expect in terms of, a, you know, in the cybersecurity space? What should we be looking for and anticipating? George, this is, this is an excellent question. And, and this, is, this is actually the, the, the fact that this question needs to be asked by top decision makers, not just the cybersecurity, but the top decision makers, means that they are recognizing that survivability is at stake. Here's the answer. Um, uh, what you just said is absolutely right. Uh, 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 in fact, there's some more detail, and I'll keep it very brief. Prime Minister Hariri of Lebanon was invited to Saudi Arabia um, under the context or the premise that there were some urgent matters for him to discuss with the Saudi government. Well, he arrived, and literally, 
um, the next thing everybody in the world heard was he issued his resignation speech while he is in Saudi Arabia on a statement that appears to be written for him. Uh, he does not speak uh, good English to have actually drafted it away. He appeared on Saudi television, resigning from his position in, in, um, in Saudi Arabia. Why this is relevant? First of all, it's unprecedented for a leader of a nation to resign while he's in another nation, unless he's asking for political asylum or even um, uh, uh, diplomatic immunity. Well, uh, Hariri was not asking for either. He also stated that he feared for his life. This is also a political statement of raising the banter about uh, the, the perceived threat by the Saudis and their allies to Iran. And this point here, I want to make it crystal clear to your audience. Reconcile that with, the, with President Trump's speech a few weeks ago, where Iran was a critical component of his speech as how he is focusing on the Iran nuclear uh, deal and why Iran is uh, allegedly uh, sponsoring terrorism, etc., etc., etc. And then you can start asking yourself, well, hang on a second, is the, is the, is the, is the move in, the, in Saudi Arabia, that, that political tsunami and all of these arrests, are they with the approval of the United States government or the White House? Now, if that's the case, that may indicate that now the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and its allies are actually starting to raise the banter that we may have the prospect of a war in, in, um, uh, in the region. And fundamentally, fact reconcile another fact, and I'll, I also try to keep this brief. ISIS is but defeated. The last uh, uh, stronghold uh, they had in Syria fell a couple of days ago. They barely have no resistance anymore in Iraq. So now you have uh, a solidified position by the, by the Syrian, by Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, uh, by Iraq in Iraq against, against ISIS. And, um, and then it, it appears to be that the drums of war are, um, uh, are, being, are being played. And unfortunately, this, the mere notion that this is a likelihood, whether it happens or not, has impact on us in the West, on the U.S., on businesses, because it causes not only this prospect of instability, but it causes the, 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 the prospect of havoc. And we all so know about, about that how, how wars... Let's talk about that. I, I want to Sorry, get into go that for a second. I, I want to dive into that a little bit deeper in terms of, sure. you know, knowing our adversary in terms of their cybersecurity capability. And, you know, I've spoke about it before on, on some other episodes that it's imperative for cybersecurity professionals to understand their adversary as well as themselves when coming up with their strategy to protect their data. And, you know, when we talk about terrorists and the threat actor taxonomy, and because this, this isn't your wheelhouse, I want to get some of your you know, opinions on this. How different are terrorist capabilities in terms of their ability to infiltrate a network and wreak havoc, as you just say, and destruction with, you know, organizations' critical data? Can you can you talk about that compared to criminal organizations or nation states? I, I can, and I won't go into too much detail because we leave some of the detail to private briefings that relate directly to the boards and the C-suite. Um, I don't want to be um, scaring people or, uh, over the um, um, uh, on your show, but knowing where you actually, um, uh, how you are uh, threatened and what your threat, fact, threat vectors are, it's critical. Look, but let, me, let, let, me, let me summarize this in, an, in a way that decision makers who are not technical can really relate to this and uh, that eureka moment can happen. Um, 
and we use this regularly uh, with our clients and with our uh, in private briefings. I always ask, if I were to give you three ingredients to make me an omelet, and that those ingredients are cheese, milk, and butter, what's the next thing you're going to tell me? That was a question, George. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's because, that's because you recognize eggs are an ingredient in an omelet. And if you apply that same model on how cybersecurity has been implemented over the years, it's that if you do an audit from a cybersecurity-only point of view and you recognize certain things are missing, well, guess what? You can say, well, this is Mindy's missing. This is, we, need, we need to fix this. However, in the 21st century, in this new era of the unprecedented, where everything has been uh, uh, new and improved, um, stakeholders need to realize that there are new and missing ingredients they need to implement into the way they defend themselves and they secure themselves that, are, that may not necessarily have been uh, things they've even considered or even heard of. I'll give you a simple example without giving away the farm over the, over the radio. Um, the, the discussion we're talking about what's happened in Saudi Arabia, what happened in, in Qatar, how it's impacting the world, this is part of the geopolitical risk analysis that we do. Now, what's, what's alarming here is less than 5% of organizations and stakeholders around the world have one of those. Now, if you don't have one of those, well, guess what it tells you here is that you're, uh, you're sailing into the winds and you don't know where the threat's coming in and then the wind could hit you from anywhere. This is not how you want to be able to survive in the, 20th, in the 21st century. So, uh, uh, because 100% of stakeholders are impacted from this. Another thing that they need to come to terms with here is that, and this is, nobody's doing this, we're probably unique in that, is that uh, boards and C-suite need to also learn where they sit on a Richter-style Richter uh, uh, scale of being targeted by the polycyber terrorists, whether they are uh, terrorists with a destruction motivation or whether they are uh, 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 politically motivated for ha uh, ha hackers uh, by nation states. And this also is educational and informative to both because without it, you're also sailing aimlessly into the sunset and you don't know where the wind's going to hit you from. And unfortunately, the threat landscape we are in, into today means that the next breach, you know, it could be your last one. So in your opinion, can you tell us what terrorist organization has the greatest offensive cyber capability? Do you know, that's, that's like, uh, no, I can't. And I'll, I'll tell you why I can't. The, um, uh, uh, the, the threat landscape from the cyber terrorists isn't in the traditional form of saying, well, they, can, they have this, they have this, they have that. I can tell you what they have that uh, is probably not mitigatable immediately and that requires some uh, serious thinking uh, at, the, at the board and C-suite level. Um, uh, the um, the, the, the um, radicalization is, is a big threat. Once you radicalize somebody and you create the motivation for them to duplicate, to copycat through cyber, um, and then you have many of those and millions of those, um, the threat landscape changes. So you're constantly having to actually up your game to make sure you are well informed of what needs to be looked at and your fundamentals, your traditional cybersecurity strategies that are failing on a daily basis, by the way, elsewhere. These need to be up to date and they have to be robust. Alone, they're not enough. That's really the, 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 the fundamental message.
Okay. I want to switch gears here for a second. I want to talk about something else. I've heard you. I've heard you talk about uh, a very serious issue in the way cyber secure or cyber insurance, I should say, is being promoted and sold to large companies. Could you talk a little bit about you know cyber insurance plans and 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 how to determine if they are fit for purpose? That's a, that's a very very relevant question also and an issue for uh, uh, top decision makers. Um, um, as you probably know, in the last couple of years, cyber insurance has become the thing for people to go and uh, consider. A majority of uh, small and medium businesses think it's too expensive for them, but the um, uh, you know the large ones, the large enterprises, uh, most of them may have cyber insurance, especially in the U.S. But what they don't know here is that their policies may not necessarily be worth the paper they're printed on. And I know I'm going to be upsetting a lot of uh, brokers and insurance uh, companies, but this is, this is really a fact. When it comes to the, uh, the topic of terrorism or cyber terrorism, um, uh, many of these policies are, were designed in a, in a rush uh, to fulfill a demand by stakeholder, uh, demand from stakeholders, but the insurance companies incorporated um, ambiguous or conflicting clauses that would render you, or even in some cases, by the way, exclusions, specific exclusions, that if you are breached by a cyber terrorist, you will not be paid. And um, when when insurance brokers tell you that, no, 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 you're, you're covered. It, it, the motivation is not relevant. The motivation is uh, irrelevant. What counts is if you are breached, you're covered. The truth of the matter here is, to give you an example, if a company is breached by a, uh, a, a criminal gang and they ask for ransomware and you know, they file a claim and they, you know, they get paid, but let's assume they get breached by somebody who the next day co- goes and claims it for a particular uh, religious or uh, uh, or um, uh, uh, terrorist uh, group, that automatically becomes a cyber terrorist breach. And with the wording in majority of those policies, I'm saying 90% of those policies, maybe more, um, terrorism is an exclusion, and cyber terrorism is not recognized in the policy. And there is a significant a likelihood that your underwriter and your insurance uh, company will decline you. And this is something are you that, uh, that we do. Are you saying that it's excluded from the writing, or are you saying that it's specifically included that this type of activity is excluded from the policy? You're not covered. So uh, does it say in, in, in 90% of these policies that you're talking about, does it specifically say in a small print somewhere that if this was related to some kind of terrorist activity that you're not covered? You, you know what? Um, um, I, I won't give away, again, I'm not going to give away the secret sauce, but um, um, uh, many of these policies contain exclusions where terrorism is an exclusion. Uh, the trouble here is decision makers and uh, stakeholders do not know enough about the subject matter to make sure that they ask the broker, are we covered from this? Nor is the broker well-versed in in the, in the cyber terrorism stuff to say, yes, you are or you are not covered. So neither one of them is aware, and everybody, one is selling, the other one is buying, and they think they're covered. I mean, uh, look, this is one of the services that we offer. We offer audits for stakeholders to determine whether their policy would or would not cover in the case of a cyber terrorist breach. And the, 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 the faces that actually drop when they see the report say, we did not know that. 
Um, and then they have to ask, you know, what policies uh, would cover against cyber terrorism. And this is where we help them. But the truth of the matter here is um, cyber, terror, uh, cyber insurance is uh, uh, literally your last line of defense that if you are breached, you can still continue. And if you think you have one just because you went through the checkbox exercise by uh, somebody in your department, uh, trust me, this is not enough. And the number of CEOs that uh, 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 express shock when they discover what, uh, what we inform them um, is, 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 uh, is a vindication for us that we're doing a good job. Have you ever seen an organization that wasn't covered that had a cyber insurance policy because of the exclusion that you're talking about? Because they, oh, they, they were attacked by a, a, a yeah. Oh no no, you talking about attack? Um, uh, yeah. If they were attacked by a terrorist organization in a cyber event, and they had a cyber insurance policy, did you ever see an, an instance where they were not covered because of this exclusion? This is a very good question because that that implies that we were dealing with them as a client post breach. They had a policy that um, uh, was not that did not cover cyber terrorism and the breach was of terrorist activity. We haven't come across this yet. What we have done is we've, we've audited many cyber insurance policies and we have found uh, a large number of them that would actually not perform in case of a cyber terrorist uh, uh, breach. All right. So to the shock, by, by the way, to the shock to the decision makers. What's that? Yeah, exactly. These people that are shocked, and, and, and what do companies and organizations need to start thinking about then when they're considering the cyber insurance policy? I mean, what do you recommend that they do? Well, if they, I mean, I don't suggest, I mean, they can start with the cyber insurance. Like, for example, if they already have a cyber insurance policy or they're thinking about one, um, they need to, uh, to ask experts in that space that are not motivated by selling them a policy. So that, you know, we can help with this, and we call it the cyber insurance audit. But this is not a, this is not a, a, a sales pitch, by the way. However, what I think is relevant and what decision makers need to, need to ask themselves is, um, how do I actually uh, uh, secure or uh, ensure my survivability in this 21st century? This is really the, the uh, $64 million question. And um, that in itself, it doesn't happen with a magic wand. There's no quick download. And it really requires a, a change in mindset from the top down. Um, uh, uh, awareness that traditional cybersecurity strategies are, are failing on a daily basis and the next breach could become your last one is, is, is really important. Um, uh, awareness that conventional thinking no longer work. Um, recognition that you have... Uh, you have to ask, what are my missing ingredients? Because majority of organizations not only do not know what these missing ingredients are, but they don't have the internal expertise to actually deal with them. So you can imagine what the challenge is. Um, and then the, um, uh, the next thing is they need to ask for, uh, how do I address and rectify this? And uh, you need to go to experts who know this stuff. Uh, otherwise, um, and you have to do that before you cyber breached. That's that's simple. So we're all, you know, I know one of your passions is educating the public and making sure they're aware of some of the threats we face out there from a cybersecurity perspective. People are always talking about educating the C-suite, but how much does the average citizen actually understand about how much their life depends on the ability of cybersecurity professionals to protect and preserve the, their way of life in terms of, you know, when they get up, their, their ability to get money and have electricity and, and buy food and 
just go along their 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 uh, you know their daily activities. I mean, yep. how much does the average citizen really understand? George, George, this is a topic. This is a, above and beyond just business. This is a topic that is a passion for me and to my heart, and it gives me nightmares. I'll give you an example. When you look at, uh, let's use Equifax. Equifax with 143 million records um, uh, across different countries, by the way, compromised. Who, are, who is really going to be impacted the most severest from all this? Yes, shareholders do, will get be impacted. The CEO uh, left or was asked to leave. But the average consumer, average citizen, is the one who's going to be impacted, especially if their identity has been lost, if their details. And now, who's helping them to go and retrieve that detail and then do the next? The people are the most impacted from this. And I tell you what, and this may resonate with many of your uh, listeners. This may not, but it doesn't matter. I'm going to say what I'm going to say. Um, I actually feel that the compilation of all of these uh, activities, all of these threats, uh, uh, vectors, from the uh, political, especially the politically motivated um, uh, hacking aimed to change the direction of our nation, where the average citizen is, uh, can be impacted and they could be nine miles away from, uh, from anarchy. Um, uh, we need to do something about this. This is, this is totally unacceptable. And I actually put it as it's a threat to the core values of democracy in the 21st century. And, um, and unfortunately, um, it's not going to fix itself by itself because in a democratic society, the citizen has to be able to be, inf- has to be informed about what's going on and they have to weigh in on what happens next. Well, in this case, so they know very little so about right, this right, right. and they, they can know. Yeah, exactly. Yep, we're running short, so I only have one question. I'd really like to just get a couple quick comments from you before we have to close out. If you have one single piece of advice for decision makers on what they should do next in the C-suite, what would that be? You know what? Um, um, a single piece of advice would be um, seek help. Seek advice. Ask from the, those who you seek to help you, what are your missing ingredients? Because if you don't do that, um, you're going to be, you, you, uh, although you may be doing a lot of transformational stuff, you're still implementing the traditional stuff, and that's not going to be a recipe for, uh, uh, for securing the future. All right. I'm afraid we run out of time. You know, Khalid, thanks so much for being on the show. It was great to, to hear your opinions. It's a pleasure having you. My pleasure. It's been a pleasure as well. All right. That does it for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.